You're listening to The Product Edge, and I'm Jade Bennett, Australia's leading product management recruitment expert, founder of Middleton Executive, and a professional development and mindset coach. In this podcast, I take you on a journey into the minds of exceptional product leaders, entrepreneurs, creators, and hustlers. In each episode, I introduce you to experts in their field, and my mission is to help every product professional level up and reach their full potential by providing you with the skills, insights, and tools that you need to excel in your career and gain your product edge. Joining me today is Catherine Barrett. Catherine is a product manager at Drawboard, where she is helping to create the paperless office. As a self-proclaimed minimum viable adult, Catherine has come to value the simplicity of things and over time has developed a passion for talking about the last moments of a product or feature. I cannot wait to explore how product folk can get all Marie Kondo and declutter their products. So welcome to the Product Age, Catherine. Thank you so much for having me, Jay. I'm really happy to have a chat with you today. Excellent. And so look, before we dive into how we can declutter our products, can you give us an overview of your career to date? Uh, Sure. I can um, talk a little bit about my product career, but I'll do the one that my mum always finds the most amusing or the most emotionally distressing, depending on the day, (laughs) uh, which is that I actually started my career in public relations. Uh, and then I attempted to become a lawyer. Um, I have the degree, but I was never really a lawyer. Uh, and somewhere along the line, I accidentally tripped over product management and um, landed in a product management role for the Queensland government, Okay. Uh, which I did for a few years before uh, moving to what I now call home, which is in Melbourne, and doing product management for a variety of companies, um, including quite a long stint at car sales, um, which is where I really developed my passion around product and really started to get involved in the community. Fantastic. And how does um, being a trained lawyer, I guess, impact your approach and, and mindset to product management? Yeah, it's funny you should ask. I um, I always introduce myself as saying I have two degrees in lying, but um, <laughs> over the years I've, I've changed it to say, uh, you know, I've got two degrees in convincing you that my idea is a good one. Um, <laughs> But I think the thing that it's taught me the most over the years is actually the value of research um, and the value of how you ask questions to how people will answer them. I I always remember a a conversation I had with a woman um, working in a a social situation where we were trying to talk about her her legal documents and she kept referring to Paul, who I thought was the man sitting next to her. And it turns out that was Paul, but her husband was also called Paul. It just never occurred to me to ask that question. Uh, And it showed me that if you don't ask the right questions, you never really get the right answers. Fantastic. I love that insight. And I guess asking the right questions is hugely important for product managers. Absolutely. I think uh, a lot of the time we forget to ask the questions that we don't want to hear the answers to. Uh, Sometimes product managers fall into the trap of asking the questions we think we already know the answers to or the ones that we want to hear. And uh, we forget to ask the ones that maybe aren't going to be the most warm and fuzzy responses. Absolutely. I've heard that before, for sure. Yeah. So look, how did you, um, I guess, become the Marie Kondo of product? How did you get into (laughs) decluttering? Yeah, I, uh, I, I love that reference, uh, mostly because firstly, how flattering. Uh, but, <laughs> but secondly, when I actually first started talking to people about decluttering, I actually used to reference Marie Kondo because in my research, I came across her book. And now she has a Netflix series. So 
good for her. Well done. Yeah. Um, but also now my reference is slightly less obscure when I use her. So that's, that's nice. <laughs> <laughs> um, the short version is that uh, I became really interested in minimalism. Um, there is a much longer emotional story to that. And uh, I've regaled a few conferences over the years. Uh, I use them as my therapy sessions to get it all off my chest. Uh, but I came really interested in minimalism mostly because uh, I moved quite a lot at one period in my life and that was really stressful and I couldn't work out why carrying all these things I allegedly loved stressed me out so much. And uh, as I was researching all of this stuff, I would read something and then go to work and almost have the same conversation at work about products and technology and code as I was having with myself internally about the things that I owned. And uh, over time, I drew a link between the two. And I, I said, oh, I feel like all of these minimalism and decluttering principles apply to our software and we're just not paying attention to it. Wow. And how was that received? It was received uh, fairly well, but I think that's because my team was used to me coming up with crazy ideas at the time. Uh, <laughs> the, the group of people I worked with at the time were pretty used to that. Um, but I was also really shocked when I sort of started sharing it locally and the product management community here in Melbourne is really, really supportive in giving people the opportunity to talk about their ideas and to explore them as a group. So I did that. I took that opportunity and I shared it with people and the response was overwhelming. So many people had this emotional baggage in their product that they were carrying around and they found it that that emotional baggage was making their moves um, much harder to do. And so people really resonate, uh, like they really, really understood the concept, I think. They really uh, felt it emotionally, but they really also understood technically that when you have more stuff to move, it's harder to try new things or move fast or allow yourself to explore. And so I think that when I stand in front of people and talk about these things, people really get it. I think they, they draw the bow pretty quickly. Absolutely. And I'm smiling as you're telling me that story because I have a really good friend, Kerry, who went through um, a similar decluttering phase in her life after reading the Marie Kondo book. And I remember she decluttered her home and then I went around there one weekend and she wanted to make something or do something. And she was like, oh no, I've, I've thrown that out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, um, I have to admit my, my process uh, I don't think any minimalist or any certainly any famous minimalist would appreciate my process at all because I still have so much stuff. I'm not a true minimalist in any way, shape or form, um, but I guess I am the minimum viable adult. You know, I've kept the things that make me happy and the things that make me make my life smoother and the things that allow me to do random things that I want to do. I've just uh, maybe gotten a little bit better at saying I'm literally only carrying that around because of some emotional weird decision I made when I was 12. Yeah. I, yeah. And, I can, and I can imagine as a product manager, you know, you do get emotionally attached to what you've built or engineers will be emotionally attached to, to what they've created. Do you look at your product and go, does this spark joy? Yes or no? How <laughs> do you approach it? I love it? that. Uh... I, I think categorically I don't ask that question simply because I think you know all the ugly parts about your own product <laughs> and it never sparks joy. <laughs> um, but I think there's like there's moments to it, you know, and I think that the attachment of a product, especially if you're around for 
there's a reason they call it a life cycle that, you know, there's a birth and a life of a product. And, you know, I guess I've somehow ended up talking to lots of people about the death of products, but um, yeah, this life cycle, it, it makes you attached to it because you literally see it born into the world. There's planning that goes into that. There's a lot of time and effort and consideration. Um, and normally as a product manager as well, you've exerted quite a lot of emotional energy in getting your team just as excited about the results as you are. Uh, and so once it goes out into the world, whilst it is uh, very exciting and you can often say like, yes, this this still does what I want it to do or this still sparks joy, I think the reality is that we often move on really quickly to the next thing and we're looking for that next way problem to solve and all we see is the things that we could have done better or we could have learnt from. So I guess over time I've learnt to stop and smell the roses a little bit and take those high fives and the celebrations where I can get them. Um, but I don't think product managers are, are ever going to admit that maybe a product or feature sparks joy. I don't know. It's a good question to ask, I think. <laughs> maybe that'll be my next interview question when I'm interviewing. Yeah. I'll put that in there. <laughs> I'd be really interested in the results, I think. <laughs> I think I'll, uh, yeah, I'll collect the data and share it for sure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess on a practical level, what does decluttering your product mean and, and what does it look like? For sure. Um, so the way that I define it anyway is that when you're decluttering your product, what you're doing is you're removing the things that don't actually add to your core value proposition or what you're actually trying to achieve for your customer or for your audience. Um, and what that often means is removing barriers or in many cases, simplifying choice because choice is actually a really difficult thing for people, uh, even though many of us don't like to admit that. Uh, and making it so that it's very obvious to the customer the value they're going to get out of it and very obvious to the customer how to get that value, even in a really complex product. Okay. And and I guess if you're, you know, in a smaller organisation or a startup, your product, you know, might be quite simple and the MVP. What about in bigger mm. enterprise organisations? And I know you've worked in, you know, decent-sized organisations yourself, car sales, one of them. Does, does the product become cluttered with features and, and, and bits and pieces that aren't adding value over time? All the time, all the time. And I think that what the important thing to remember is that it's not necessarily that a feature didn't add value when you added it. When you added that feature, it had a place and it had a purpose. And I think people um, often forget that that can change over time. So the, the definition of what your value brings to a customer, the 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 core proposition of it is allowed to change. It's, you know, that's allowed, your strategy is allowed to change direction. Um, and so just because something was valuable once, a feature was valuable once, doesn't mean it's not valuable in the future, but it also doesn't guarantee it's valuable in the future. And I think that's where we have to stop and reflect on that life cycle and whether something's come to the end of its value proposition. Um, some examples that I always use for people uh, is, and I've used many times before, so I apologise if anyone's heard it, but the, at car sales we we came up with um, a new way for people to sell their car on car sales and it was through an instant offer. And a lot of people were really worried that it would mean that the value proposition of car sales, being able to buy and sell car bet cars between people, that maybe that would go away and people would prefer this other product. But really the only way to find that out was to put it in market. And we found that there was nothing to worry about. Like the life cycle of that product was well and truly still healthy, still thriving. 
But what we did discover is this new product directly competed with one of our other products, which when you really thought about it, did exactly the same thing, except instead of giving them an instant offer for a car, it gave them several offers. So it just created choice. Um, so we actually had three different formats on the website to help people sell their car. And that, that became a little overwhelming. And um, for customers, it meant that they couldn't really always distinguish, I guess, the best path for themselves. Uh, and so we removed one of them. We, re- we retired the oldest one uh, that was competing. And um, now there's the two of them. And I understand they're still doing both very well, um, which makes me a little happy. Maybe they're, they're Maybe that was my spark of joy. I think I just had a spark of joy. Yay, we found it. <laughs> yeah, I found one. I'm so, yeah, but it was, it was a really interesting moment because it, it challenged the core of the business and people were worried about that. But actually what we'd done is we'd tapped into a moment where people could did have a different problem to solve. Um, but I think it's very easy to understand like the emotions that people bring to a moment like that. <laughs> You know, the things that they've birthed into the world, whether they be 10 years ago or six months ago, people are very emotional. Absolutely. And attachment comes with with emotion. And you said to me offline that building feature after feature is like hoarding. How can product folk assess if a feature is still worth keeping around or not? So when you look at a customer, instead of looking for your potential customers, look at how many customers are actually already using the feature. And for example, the problem statement, you want to have a look and actually speak to those customers and say, how are you using this feature or why are you using this feature? Um, And what discover if they're using it as a workaround. And then you want to also look at the other elements of it. So instead of looking at, for example, how much a feature might make you, like the revenue of a feature, have a look at how much it might be costing you. A lot of what a business doesn't recognize for these hoarding moments is actually the sunk cost. And what I mean by that is people, which is, you know, you don't want to often refer to them as sunk costs because it's not a very sexy term for a person. But (laughs) the truth is that there is probably a lot of people working on this feature, spending a lot of time, effort, and in my experience, incredible brain power. I've seen some of the smartest developers I know working on features that don't really produce huge amounts of value. Um, And looking at that cost that you're putting into it, looking at how many bugs it's throwing out, uh, how many customer service hours you're putting into something, uh, how much time is even spent in conversations, in meetings, trying to work out how to market a feature that maybe just doesn't fit in market anymore. It's all money that you could be spending on something that has a much larger ROI. So I think that looking at all these indicators, but reversing them from how you would take something to market is a really great way, Uh, even down to A-B testing. So it's not necessarily true A-B tests, but it's kind of like a trap door test, I guess, where you can literally just hide a feature for a week and see what happens. (laughs) If if people scream scream at the top of their lungs that they really miss the feature and how dare you and I'll never use your website again, you know, you might want to assess firstly, if you want the screaming people on your website, but secondly, you might go, Oh, okay. That was actually really valuable. We should put that back. Um, all these tests that you actually run when you're taking something to market, you can reverse so many of them to take something back out. I love that. And that, that's just, um, made me think that when I go onto a website or I'm using a product and then all of a sudden a feature's gone, it's not me going crazy. Maybe they're hiding it from me. (laughs) 
Uh, there's actually a pretty good chance. Uh, <laughs> there is a pretty good chance they're hiding it from you. Or the other good chance is um, uh, that something's gone terribly, terribly wrong and the product manager will tell you it was all on purpose. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. And then, so if you're a product manager working in an organization and and you're having this kind of decluttering moment and you're thinking about it and and you do that analysis, you, you know, you're looking at the revenue, but then you're weighing up the cost and and you suspect, you know, that maybe the cost just isn't there and the ROI is not Mm. there. How do you bring that to, to the business or or the stakeholders and, and, and raise that and have you personal two questions and then have you personally been in a situation where perhaps one of the stakeholders or leaders are in disagreement with you and still attached to that feature? Yeah. Um, I think that is probably the number one hurdle to overcome when we talk about decluttering, because what we're actually talking about when we talk about decluttering a product is we're talking about collective decluttering. It's much easier to make principles about decluttering when you're doing it for yourself because you can draw the line on what is and is not acceptable for you. Um, but when you're organizing it with somebody else, it's all about the, the same levels of buy-in and the same shared understanding and language. And I think the, the number one thing that you're trying to overcome is actually the endowment effect. I don't know if you've come across this before, but it's basically the principle of what I own is more valuable to me. So uh, that... <laughs> The, the concept, I guess, is uh, would you like to buy this pen? How much would you pay for this pen? I'll pay you a dollar for that pen. And then now you own the pen and I would like to buy the pen from you. And I say, oh, could I please buy that pen? How much do you want for that pen? And you would say $2. Because as soon as you own it or as soon as you have some sense of ownership, it becomes more valuable to you. Mm-hmm. Um, and what happens in... I guess, emotional environments and and teamwork and things like that is that we often push ownership to get people to invest in something, especially in a a corporate um, environment these days. Uh, And then so now we have to untangle that. So we told people that they own it and they're responsible for it and their revenue line and, oh, you're doing great jobs and all this sort of thing. And now we want to turn around and tell them that we're potentially going to take it away. Um, And that's quite an emotional situation. And so being really cognizant of that going into the conversation, I think, is step number one, is that you can't expect everybody to be on the same page as you um, before they go through the process that you went through. And step number two is actually then taking them through that process. Um, I, in my experience, have had more success taking people through this process informally. So what I mean by that is even if I have my full lean canvas, I wouldn't take somebody through the canvas all in one go, especially if they're emotional about the product. I would take them through it bit by bit. And then when I was ready, um, especially if you've got like say a a profit or revenue owner and then you've got maybe a development owner and you've got all these different people, their journeys are all going to be different in how they embrace or let go of the product. Mm -hmm. Of course, when you get to a point where you want to present it to people that might have to affect roadmaps or what, or affect timelines to be able to get some work done in this space, you, you're going to have to present it. And the best thing that I can do, can suggest there um, is just remembering that it will spark conversation and it will spark discussion and people have to go through these emotions really, really quickly if you put them on the spot. Um, and so almost providing an environment where you can push them through those emotions, like let them have them, let them question you. Um, uh, I've often put things up where I've been like, oh, 
turned it into not a game as such, but a game where you sort of say, oh, how many customers do you think currently use this product? Do you think that's a big number? Do you think that's a little number? Um, And sort of steering them through the process that I went through so that I can get to the end and be like, okay, so we filled all of this out, whatever format your company uses. Um, It doesn't have to be a lean canvas. Whatever you use is fine, business case. We filled all this out. Is this a compelling business case? Um, and sometimes it's just very hard to say, yes, it's a, you know, we should keep putting our money, time, effort and talented individuals, you know, behind this thing. Um, the next thing that I would mention, though, is that sunsetting in market. If you don't bring that up with your team, uh, you're never going to make friends with the sales and marketing people. And I really like being friends with the sales and marketing people. <laughs> so I would recommend having that as part of your plan. Okay. Um, yeah, because uh, you, you want to be able to tell customers if they loved a product a feature, um, kind of as you mentioned, if you show up on a website and it's just gone and you really loved it, that can be quite a sad and uh, bad moment for your brand, I suppose, is depending on how large a feature it was. Um, yeah. But working through a sunsetting plan with those teams actually gives them the opportunity to talk to their audiences and their markets that they might not have had previously. So it can be win-win for everybody, but it's the same as selling an idea in. You're just selling it out. I love that because I think that <laughs> it's it, literally reversing it. But it, when you when you explain it as you are, it seems pretty straightforward. And I don't want to say easy, but it seems, you know, like, oh, yeah, you're just flipping it. But I'm sure in reality it, it can be more challenging and perhaps for those that haven't done it, more complex and, and probably a bit confusing as how they navigate the, the conversation, but that's some really great tips and advice there. Is there um is there an optimal time frame that it would typically take to sunset a product or go through that process? That's a good question. Um, I I would say no. My gut tells me no. Um, but the reason that I say no is because, like I said, the value of something when you put it into market is true in that moment and it only changes as the business changes around it. Um, So I think it probably depends on the pace of your business um, or maybe the throughput of your customers through your your product. And I think that you'll be able to tell based off customer engagement with other other items as well. Like sometimes a comparison is a really good way to go. Um, but I would say no. I've I think the fastest I've ever sunsetted something was maybe three months. Okay. Um, and I mean, I say I sunsetted it. I think in in lots of other contexts, people would just say that you know it was in the MVP in market. We trialed it out, but actually we put quite a bit of effort into it. I'm not sure I would have called it an MVP, but it was in market for maybe three months. Yeah. And to be honest, we just built something directly after it that was better. So there was no point in keeping it around and um, we were confusing a lot of people, so we took it out. And I think the Dealer Direct product that um, we no longer have at car sales, um, I think that that had been around for quite some period of time, actually, before we sunsetted that one. And it had done great things for the business and it was only sunsetted because of, yeah, trying to keep multiple things alive at one time can be really hard work. Absolutely. So if if you're a product manager listening now and you're thinking, okay, this sounds, this sounds logical. This sounds good. I want to have a go. What would you say are the benefits of actually decluttering your products on a consistent basis? 
Um, the number one thing that I've really enjoyed about it is actually the fact that as a product manager, it's really hard to find the the win moments, those 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 celebration moments, because a lot of the times we're attaching them to pushing something out into market. And I think going through this process um, gives you a new win, a new way to, to have a, a good moment. Um, so I think it's, it's well and truly worth going through the process, even if you don't get to take something out, simply because you'll know more about your product, you'll understand your customers a little bit better, um, and it'll really set you up, make good decisions as well about building the next feature. Yeah, okay. And should you be doing this on a quarterly basis, a yearly basis? How often should you be looking at it? That's a really good question. Um, I've got to confess that uh, minimum viable adults, so timekeeping (laughs) timekeeping and calendars are a little bit of a mess for me. Um, But in saying that, um, I have found that it's really good to put it into a cadence of anything else that you're reviewing. So mm-hmm. if you, for example, if you review your features quarterly or and when I say your features, potentially that means for you your revenue lines or if you're a product manager looking at membership, potentially it's numbers. If you're a product manager looking at, I don't know, potentially you, you look after even a technical product and what you're actually looking at is uptime or throughput. Anytime that at those large numbers, there's potentially some time available to look at the contributors. And that's the that's the fastest way for me to find maybe an underperforming player. So if I say, oh, these are, this is my key metric, this is what I'm aiming at, these are all the things that contribute to it, this one doesn't look like it's pulling its weight. And what actually might be is it's a feature attached to a feature attached to a feature all the way down there that you end up deciding to look at a little bit closer, but it's the best way to find something. So whatever cadence you're already working at, I think is probably the best cadence because throwing in something new uh, as far as timing, I think you might find it disruptive to your planning process as well. And at the end of the day, you'll have to get some buy-in, even if it's just the developers. Um, And I don't know, I've worked with many developers that don't run by a timetable exactly, but I do find developers get very upset when you interrupt the middle of what they're doing. Um, Yeah. (laughs) So, you know, you've got to, you've got to take that into consideration and whatever cadence you normally work as a team, whether a small team or a big team, um, I recommend sticking to that. But also using that cadence to inform your data. So if you work quarterly, using quarterly information might be the best way to convey your concern about a feature or a product as well. Love it. So I'm a product manager feeling all inspired to go and Marie Kondo my products now, but never done it before. What would be your your top tips or, you know, your three things to say, like, this is what you need to do to get started? Uh, Okay. So I would say number one is look for features that help the customer do exactly the same thing. So put your features into categories or buckets, if you can, not workflows. Um, which we often do. So what I mean by that is you might look at, for example, a membership account uh, and you might want to look at how you manage your membership, but actually you've got 20 different ways that someone could sign up for a membership account. Um, And that is where I would be bucketing all of those things together. So create buckets that make sense to you that are things that are all the same. Some of these things might be technical. Some of them might be an actual user experience. 
uh, and then look at some of those buckets and how big some of them are and ask yourself if you are creating a choice paralysis moment for your customers or if you actually need all of them because you might. Yeah. Perfectly acceptable. Um, Number two would be go and talk to your customer support team. Um, and find out the thing that really, really ruins their month. Um, not the thing that ruins their day because it's probably going to be the screaming customer. Yet. <laughs> uh, but, um, but the thing that ruins their month, and what I mean by that is the thing that um, comes around every now and again and is they don't know where to find the answer and they don't know how to actually provide support for it and potentially they're a new employee and they've actually never heard of this feature before. Uh, because to me, that's an alarm bell that actually it's not particularly well supported as a feature. Uh, there's potentially no way to support it. There's potentially no way to, I guess, create second tier support or anything like that for that kind of feature. And it's a really good way to start to understand the quiet complaining moments of your of your product, the things that just slowly whine in the background until they drive someone crazy. Mm-hmm. And the third one is I would go and talk to the marketing team and I would say, how would you market these features and pick potentially, I don't know, depends how much time and effort I suppose you want to put in on both sides, but maybe at least five to seven features and say, how would you market these? And if you get the response, I have no idea how to tell customers about that feature and granted, like, it can't be like a weird feature. Like, I wouldn't market logging in. I understand that. That's fine. Um, but, you know, if they, if they can't tell you what their plan would be or how they would talk to a customer about this, it's a pretty good moment to ask, well, what's the value it's giving? Um, and then what you can have a look, like you can potentially be getting rid of that feature. Those ones are also really great opportunities to look at what I refer to as upcycling or, um, you know, how to move away from the MVP and into value adds. But, yeah, I, I would go and talk to them because I think it's they know the conversation with the customer really, really well, both support and marketing. They understand the language that we need to use. And if we're not conveying value, then um, they're really great people to know that. Absolutely. And um, when you think about the product manager role, there it's, it's, it's broad and you've got everything, you know, from that ideation space all the way through to sort of the bringing the product to, to market and and I guess nurturing it beyond that. But I see a lot of product managers that once the product is launched and it's in market, they move on to something else. And and not a lot of people have that end of life experience or they've inherited mm. product and, and, and they're managing it through the, the process. Do you think as product, as a discipline matures um, locally, that you'll have product managers that specialize in that? end of life space or should all product managers really be end to end in your opinion? Um, It's a good question. Uh, I've had uh, many debates. um, I guess some, some at the bar, which potentially are like less cognizant than (laughs) the ones that I've had at the meetups and things, but many debates with other product managers, I guess, in this space. Um, And I think there's actually there's probably someone to speak much better on the topic, but it goes on into the, the conversation between like product owners versus product managers versus product analysts versus, you know, and who's responsible for what. And I think that um, as we as a discipline kind of nut through some of that and work mm-hmm. out what that all means to us, um, which I can tell you right now from my experience, 
not clear just yet. Um, yeah. <laughs> but yeah. I think as we work through that, I think some of that will have to come out because product the product end of life cycle is actually really important. We've seen some really big companies sunset their products over the last few years and it hasn't been particularly graceful, but I don't think that a sunset always is. Uh, however, I do think that watching those companies, how they've redirected those time and effort and uh, seeing them come out the other side of that is a really good reason for us to all give it a give it a go. Um, but I actually personally think we're probably going to end up with more people that do the the end-to-end, the reason being that we're hitting a maturity point here in Australia where we've got products that have been around long enough to now sunset them, which we didn't have before, so that's great. But what I do think is we might actually end up with some specialists in the marketing discipline, um, so product marketing, where they're actually specialised in this, uh, I guess, uh, the emotional part of the sunset because it, it is emotional and it is this moment where the brand has to... Uh, be quite involved in how we actually retain customers and um, keep the value front of mind for them. So I think that product marketer might become a bit of a specialist somewhere in that digital space. Um, That's where I'd put my money at the moment. And the product managers, I think it's our responsibility to be um, able to take things away just as uh, efficiently and effectively as we bring them around. Absolutely. And you're spot on when you said, you know, the conversations that are happening around defining the product owner, the product manager, the the product analyst, the product marketing role is is evolving. And and you can see companies kind of, you know, ironing out the kinks a little bit more and more and, and more companies are actually looking at that product marketing role. Um, full-time so it'll be really interesting to see where this falls into to the conversation I guess over the coming years um okay so look before we wrap up I'd love to know what's been your greatest achievement to date uh I I was uh thinking about this just recently and um I think it actually has to be that the last time I moved house I did it in a four-wheel drive in a trailer uh, I was very excited about that moment because I'd managed to reduce my things to that amount and the trailer was because I own too many plants. So <laughs> that was embarrassing but I, successful. I love successful. that. I love that. I remember when I moved to Australia 11 years ago, I came with one suitcase. Last time I moved, I was living on my own, moved in with my now husband and I had an entire truck to myself I was like oh gee I think I need to uh look at that <laughs> yes the first time I moved I just tetris everything into my Toyota Corolla which is like a little hatchback thing and off I went and so it had gotten well out of hand between that and the last move but I'm pretty proud of that um mostly because it means something to me it obviously doesn't mean it, everything to everyone else but um yeah it was a really good moment to I guess I'd, I'd done all that reading about minimalism and I, yeah. I knew I wasn't a minimalist, but I tried really hard. So I was happy with the result. Well, you're certainly living by it. That's for sure. <laughs> and then look on the flip side, I always like to ask people, you know, what's been their achievement? And then on the flip side, you know, what's been one of the, the biggest obstacles or challenge that, challenges that you've had to overcome? Yeah, I, um, I think that's actually a good question to ask because I think that it's easy to just remember the good things that people talk about, especially when they get a platform to talk on. And I think there's lots of obstacles um, that people just don't see because they don't see behind the scenes. Uh, I mentioned to someone just recently, 
a few different people had asked me about becoming a product manager. And I said, I think it's really great that the product managers make it look so glamorous that everyone wants to be a product manager. Clearly, we're hiding all of the drama inside. Um, And there is a lot of drama. I think that one of the biggest obstacles for me has certainly been that communication and emotional intelligence, I think. And and it's it's always there and it's always changing um, and something I'm still overcoming. So um, every single person I work with in past companies and now has a different emotional intelligence, a different communication style, a different way of wanting to do things and be. And then when you come in and you say, oh, and also I'd like to kill off that favourite uh, favorite feature of yours, uh, learning how to do that gracefully. I've been so proud of the moments where I have been able to effectively communicate with people. Um, and I'm really proud of the moments where I've uh, literally had a whole group of developers around a big red button pumped to kill a feature. Um, so, yeah, I think that overcoming those obstacles are a big part of my future journey as well. I love that. And I'm, uh, I've got visions now of uh, the product folk listening to this, thinking, right, go to the office on Monday and they're going to be like, right, we're killing these features. Yeah. <laughs> this is going to be a huge abundance of features being killed all of a sudden. Well, I mean, I always like to tell people to uh, start small, um, mostly because choice is like a muscle. Um, and the more that you flex it uh, and the more that you get used to making choices about the things that are to go, the stronger you will be and the better you'll be at communicating. So start with something small that you know maybe everybody hates and uh, build up to that thing you really want to see go. Fantastic. Catherine, it's been great talking to you today. Thank you so much for sharing your insights and experiences with us. How can we stay connected with you going forward? Uh, you can find me on LinkedIn. Uh, I'm currently a employee of Drawboard. So I'm Catherine Barrett and I'm at Drawboard at the moment as a product manager. And if you want, you can find me on most platforms as Miss Communicat. Fantastic. And I'll include all of those links in our show notes. So lastly, before we wrap up, what would be your one piece of advice for product managers going forward? Uh, I think the one piece of advice that I have for all product managers is to remember that we're all working it out as we go and that while we all have a little bit of imposter syndrome at every level it we are meant to be here because it's a minimum viable adult kind of job you know we're all making it up we're all going to get better there's a version two of all of us out of there out there and um, I think that when I first started in product management I thought that there was a right way to be a product manager and I now realize there's probably just a right way for me to do product management. So just keep that in mind and keep pushing on. Love it. You've been fantastic, Catherine. Thank you. No problems, Jade. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you for listening to The Product Edge brought to you by Middleton Executive. You can head to theproductedge.com.au to subscribe to Australia's number one podcast for all things product management. I would love for you to subscribe, rate and leave us a review. Until next time, I look forward to introducing you to more product leaders, entrepreneurs, creators and hustlers who will share their insights and experiences to help you level up and reach your full potential.